right. Good morning, everybody. It's my uh, pleasure this morning to introduce Mike Sherrard as our uh, our teacher this morning. Uh, Mike comes to us uh, as the president of the C.S. Lewis Society. A few weeks ago, we had Tom Woodward here. Tom is the founder of that ministry, and our church has supported that ministry. And Tom has been here multiple times sharing about the impact of that ministry. And um, over the course of the last year or so, Mike has taken on the role of president um, of that ministry, and so they're working together. Uh, Mike is a, uh, a longtime pastor from the Atlanta area, mostly, and uh, so with that, um, just join me in welcoming Mike to, uh, to come and, uh, and preach to us this morning. Come on, Mike. Thanks, brother. Thanks. Good morning. Yeah, thank you for having me here. Check, check. My voice is naturally that boomy, so that's what you're hearing. It's not the microphone. Uh, yeah, I'm from Atlanta. I had a little bit of a delay getting here. I was really looking forward to being here last night when uh, your pastor Paul told me about the emphasis or that you all are doing discipleship. I really wanted to see that. Um, it seems like discipleship has gone out of fashion in many churches across this country. So to know that you all are committed to helping each other follow Jesus Christ, that encouraged me, and I really wanted to see that. Um, so thank you, for, again, thank you for having me here. Thank you for loving your Pastor Paul the way that you do. I know he's on sabbatical, and uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of it. You probably are, but uh, there's a lot of research out right now showing how the last couple of years have really taken its toll on pastors, and not to say that that's necessarily Paul's story, but just knowing that you're a church that is sensitive to the needs of a pastor and his family tells me a lot about you all, so thank you for that. And last thing, thank you for your generous support of our ministry. Yeah, I'm new on the job. Three months, February is when I started after pastoring for 10 years in a church very similar to this, similar in size, and just hearing the story of, of this church's history, its age, my church is about the same age, 20 years old about, there were a lot of similarities. And so this is the first time I've preached on a Sunday morning in three months. So you know what that means, right? We're going to be here for a while. No, but again, thank you for your generous support uh, for the ministry and uh, looking forward to, to being here with you today, talking with you after the service if you want any questions that you have, either about the text or about our ministry. I'm glad to be here with you. So we're in John, right? How awkward would that be if you weren't? And I was ready to preach something that you're not. How has been this? How has been the Book of John been for you? It's fantastic, isn't it? Maybe you haven't been here the whole time, and that's okay. We'll give you. There'll be a chance for you to catch up. But where you all are at in John is is amazing. Chapter eight, verse twelve. Uh, the context is the Feast of Booths, and as as we've been re or at we as you all have been reading John. You know, one of the things that John draws out in this gospel is how the world is handling Jesus. And have you seen that? There's different reactions to Jesus' public ministry, his teaching, and his miracles. How are some people responding to Jesus? Feel free to interact this morning. And if you're wrong, I'll just make fun of you, so no worries. <laughs> how are some people responding to Jesus? They're skeptical. And there's range of skepticism here, right? There's like the true questioner, 
Like in chapter 7, which you guys were just in, right? There's all of these questions. Could this be the Christ? It says that in chapter 7. Will the Christ, when he comes, actually do more miracles than this? The people are asking this question. But, there are, but there's a number of people that are unsure. And what, what are some of the reasons they're unsure? Do you remember? They're like, it, how, can he, how can Jesus be the Christ? He comes from Galilee. Do you remember that question in chapter 7? And the Christ can't come from Galilee. The Christ must come from where? Oh, my gosh, this is interactive. <laughs> Bethlehem, which, of course, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. So there are, there are, there's a group of people that you might put in the skeptical category, but there's a range of skepticism. There's like the honest kind of doubter that's like, I, I don't know what to do with Jesus. I don't know what to do with him. I don't know that he can be the Christ. And they have just like a factual, something that's factually incorrect. That They know appropriately that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem. And they're like, Jesus came from Galilee, so it can't be him. But if it's not him, who is Jesus? How will the Christ do more miracles than he? There's some harder skeptics. There are those that are outright rejecting Jesus. And then there is another group, and it's a group that is simply what? Believing and following. And I think John does an excellent job, of course, being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this gospel to show something we all must do. Decide on who Jesus is and decide if we're going to follow him. And so that's the question for us this morning. As John has shown us, in a sense, that Jesus is on trial publicly, same can be said that is true today, that Jesus, much like that, is still on trial. Who is he? Should I follow him? What am I to do with Jesus? We all have to come to a point where we answer that question, what am I going to do with Jesus? And with that, if you will, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. Uh, we're in verse 12, and I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. So if you don't have that, you can just try to do your own translating on the fly, or you can just listen. But let's read here in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? 
Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning. Help us in our faith. Help us with our questions. Father, so many of us here believe you have the words of life. Help us to understand those words this morning. May it be a light for our path. And Father, I pray for any in here that are struggling this morning, questioning their faith, questioning your very existence or perhaps your goodness. I pray that you administer to those people this morning also through your word. Father, we gather here for your glory, for we know it is good for us when you are lifted up high and we see you for who you are. It's in your name that we pray, amen. So Jesus spoke to them again. It's important to know the context here. I know last week you dealt with the story of the woman uh, caught in adultery and you wrestled with uh, where does this fit in the gospel of John? And I think we're on the same page if I remember rightly what Ryan told me that this passage is authentic. It's an authentic story, but it's been a text kind of without a context. They haven't quite known where to put it in the gospel of John. And that's a story of textual criticism and New Testament scholarship. And if that raises any questions for you, I'm more than glad to talk to you after this. Because I think what it does is that story in the gospel of John doesn't belong there because verse 12 really is a continuation of chapter 7. And Jesus is at the Feast of Booths also called perhaps the Tabernacles, which was celebrated in September or October. And the reason it was called the Feast of Booths is because people would live in leafy shelters, like tents, and they did this to remember God's faithfulness to them during their wanderings in the wilderness. So it was a religious holiday, much like we celebrate Christmas. Christmas is a holiday that has spiritual significance, and we stop what we're doing every year and have a party. We celebrate. But our celebration is attached to something of ultimate significance, the fact that Jesus Christ came and was born as a child, lived a sinless life, showed us who God the Father was, ultimately leading to his death on the cross for our sins. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we celebrate Easter. Well, the Festival of Booths is a similar kind of holiday for the Jewish people. They would stop what they're doing. They'd set up tents. And if you're a kid, is that not one of the coolest kind of religious holidays you can imagine? It's also really effective, don't you think, to pass on to your children God's faithfulness? Hey, let's go build a shelter and live it in a week to remember our time of wandering in the wilderness. What's, all that? What's that about, Dad? Well, at one time, the people of God were held in captivity in Egypt, but God delivered them from there. But because of their lack of faith, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But even so, God did not abandon them. Isn't that a cool way to teach your children the things of God and his faithfulness? Now, if you remember this story, and even if you didn't have to sleep in a tent for a week to remember this story, how did God lead his people 
when they were in the wilderness. You're going to have to get to know my personality. I'm literally asking you a question. <laughs> that wasn't rhetorical. He, he led them how? By a pillar of fire. Okay, so the Feast of Booths is to remember God's faithfulness to them in the wilderness, right? A part of the, God's faithfulness to the, his people in the wilderness was he led them as a pillar of fire, right? So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world during the Feast of Booths, what is he saying? I, that was more rhetorical. <laughs> totally kidding. <laughs> yeah, what is he saying? Yeah, you're right. Jesus is making a pretty profound claim here to say, I am the one worthy to lead God's people. Those who follow me will not walk in darkness. That is a profound claim. And how do the Pharisees respond to it? What's their objection? You're bearing a witness about yourself. Now, this has legal precedent, and this is actually uh, really good in Jewish law that they would not be able to uh, convict somebody on the account of only one witness. That's good jurisprudence, don't you think? You wouldn't want to end up in prison simply because your neighbor said you stole his livestock. Boy, is there... What? No, I didn't. Yes, he did. You don't want to get into this hearsay, so you need at least two witnesses to be able to make a judgment. So this is what the Pharisees are appealing to here. They're rejecting Jesus' claim because he's the one making it about himself. So they say, your, your, your testimony is, it can't be true because you're the one making it about yourself. And how does Jesus respond? Even if... It's interesting, even if I'm only, even if I'm the only one giving this testimony, my testimony is true. Isn't that bold? He's speaking to the religious elite, the leaders, the religious leaders of God's people at this time. And I just imagine him looking him square in the eye, right, and saying, even if... I'm bearing testimony about myself. My testimony is true. I know where I come from, and I know where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. Now, let's focus on that part a little bit, and then we'll go back to the other part. That statement right there, like, it's like, what? It's actually really cool. <laughs> it's actually really cool. Am I allowed to say about the Bible? Isn't all of it cool? Probably so. But here's what I mean by that. What Jesus is doing here is he's calling them terrible judges, you want to bring up judging? You are the worst judges there are. You judge according to the flesh, he goes on to say. I judge no one. Even if I do, my judgment is true because I don't do it by myself. I do it with the Father. Again, he's making some radical claims here. 
So the, him pointing out, you don't know where, I'm com- where I come from or where I'm going. If you, ha- if you go back maybe after the sermon and just read, or today, read John chapter 7. That's one of the big things that threw the Sanhedrin into a confusion, was Jesus saying, I'm going to go someplace and you, you, won't, you won't be able to follow me. Jesus is, of course, uh, t- uh, alluding to when he is going to uh, go back to the Father. And the, he's talking about the ascension there. But the Pharisees are like, where is he going to go that we can't find him? And they're all confused. Chapter 7 involves this back and forth with the religious leaders going, where is he going to go that we, we can't follow? Also in chapter 7, there's the whole back and forth about where is Jesus from? And the Pharisees, when Nicodemus starts to, I mean, you really got to, this is why you got to read the Bible in chunks. There's so much in seven that's relevant for this. But Nicodemus, you know who Jesus came to in John chapter three, how can a man be born again? How, how must a man be saved? That, that whole conversation. Well, Nicodemus starts rising up and saying, hey, hey, the way we're treating Jesus isn't fair. Do we judge somebody before we put them on trial? And do you remember the, the Pharisees' response to him? Oh, are you going to be a follower now too? No prophet comes from Galilee. So here's what Jesus is saying. Oh, you want to talk about judging, huh? You don't know where I came from. I think in that is, I'm from Bethlehem. Anybody who's interested could know that. Anybody who's really curious Anyone who's really seen the works that I have done and is asking the question, will the Messiah do more than these? How could that be? He's not from Galilee. Why don't you just get your facts straight? Is Jesus from Galilee? Oh, but you're the good judge. And you can't even get the simple facts straight of where I'm from. Now I'm adding a little shard sarcasm here. <laughs> I don't know if Jesus had that tone or not. So he points out, you are terrible judges. Even if my testimony is just my own, it's true. Now, Jesus did play by the rules of the game, though. The rules of testimony are actually perfectly fine. These laws were given to God's people by God himself. So this idea of having multiple witnesses, that idea originated with Jesus, And do you remember what Jesus did in John chapter 5? John gave to the religious leaders and all who were listening, here are my witnesses. So that's really important because remember here, Jesus is saying, even if. So he's saying, no, I have more witnesses, by the way. But even if I were my only witness, my testimony is true. But if you go back and read John chapter 5, what were the three witnesses that Jesus claimed to have? Yeah, this is a test. I saw that look. You're going to get a failing grade in your D group. John the Baptist was one of them. You're exactly right. You get a finger slap, snap point. I had a professor that gave those out during class, and he gave like five a semester. It was better to get that than an A. So anyways. Yeah, Jesus said, here's my witnesses. John the Baptist, and he says, who at one time you all believed was a prophet of God. John the Baptist said who I was. He said, but I got something even better than John the Baptist. And Jesus said, my miracles. Those testify about who I am. And the people got that, right? I keep referencing this this question from John chapter 7. Will the Messiah actually do more works than this? 
So the people were aware that the kinds of things Jesus was doing could only be done by one sent from God. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees above all knew that. And in John chapter 5, Jesus also said, like he says here in John chapter 8, God the Father is my witness. But you don't know him. He says that here in verse 8. He says this repeatedly in John. He looks at the Pharisees and says, you don't know God. If you did know God, you would know me. Jesus even gets really bold. I forget, the ref, I forget the passage here, so forgive me, but it's definitely in John, where Jesus says, God, you don't know God. He is not your father. Who did he tell the Pharisees their father was? Satan. So here is in John chapter 8, in the festival of booths, Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. Those who follow me will never walk in darkness. My testimony is true. I make judgments in according with the Father. And you don't know who God the Father is. Otherwise, you would know me. And he said this in the temple, but no one arrested him. They were trying to arrest him, right? They were trying to do this. But John says, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. A phrase that you see all throughout the Gospel of John that just shows the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. It's another reference to his divinity. Nothing was going to happen that was outside of his sovereign will. One more thing before we move on to a couple of things I really want us to see from this passage. Just to clarify this statement on, I judge no one. And the reason I just want to take a second is because do not judge is perhaps the most well-known verse in the United States but it's also the, probably the most misapplied verse in the United States. People will frequently say, who are you to judge? Don't tell me what I'm doing is wrong. I got my own truth. You can have your truth. I can have my truth. Don't judge me. Even Jesus said, don't judge. And here again, we read Jesus saying, I don't judge. So is that the way that we're to take this idea from Scripture? The answer is no. Here in chapter 8, Jesus is making a very specific claim, or he's making a very specific point about his earthly ministry. Jesus' purpose in coming to earth was to make known who God was and to die on the cross for our sins. That was the very specific purpose of Jesus' ministry. It was not to judge. That will come later. 
And the scripture is very plain about that, that Jesus does have the authority to judge and he will assume the role of judge on that day. In your Bible, it's always capitalized, that day. Scripture talks about a time that is coming when God will judge the world. Ultimately and finally, all who have ever lived will have to stand before the judgment seat and it will be Jesus who is the judge. So when he's saying this here right now, well, his point is really about the specific ministry he had for his time there on earth. And his public ministry wasn't about judgment, it was about saving. But even notice that the idea of do not judge is not like in the way that we modernly, you know, will apply that, like don't tell somebody that they're wrong. Jesus, that's not, it's clearly not what Jesus means. Because if you go back and read in Matthew when it talks about do not judge, the whole context is actually how hard it is to be a good judge. And if you're going to judge, be a good judge. That's actually the, that's the whole teaching there. And if you even go back to uh, John chapter 7, or is it in this passage? Give me a second, I'll catch up. Oh, it's in 7. <laughs> I told you, I had to read it through in my head real quick. Yes, I am a savant. I can just read. No. <laughs> in John chapter 7, oh, it's such a, heated, such a heated exchange here. The end of 7, Jesus starts bringing up Moses. You know, he goes through, he gives his witnesses. And then he says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures thinking you're going to find eternal life. And yet you miss the big picture. They speak about me. Moses saw that. Moses wrote about me. And if you don't believe Moses, you'll never believe me. But right in the middle of that exchange, Jesus brings up the idea of judging again. He says, I'm not here to accuse you. You know why? Oh my gosh, this is such a mic drop moment for Jesus. He says, I'm not here to accuse you. You already have an accuser. You already have one who has made a judgment against you. Do you know who it is? It's Moses. And that's the whole context. Moses wrote about me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. But because you don't believe Moses, you're not gonna believe me. So Jesus clearly came and his ministry, it drew a line. And that, the, the word of God itself is something that judges and shows you to be what you are. And so when Jesus makes this point here, he's saying, no, right now, that's not my, that's not my purpose. You already have enough judgment on you already. I've come here to save. Hear me. See my works. Repent of your sins and find eternal life. I love the book of John because it, it does such a great job at showing us who Jesus is. If you've been a Christian for a long time, sometimes the familiarity of going to church can cause a 
lack of familiarity with Jesus. He just becomes this thing. Not the very son of God who came and walked this earth and was bold and was wise and had authority, but was also so loving and kind. And the gospel of John helps us to really see that and I think help us to love Jesus. Those of us who are already his followers, I think the book of John in a passage like this can evoke that kind of appropriate emotion from us where we want to worship him because we see him for who he is. For those of you that are questioning, I think the gospel of John just gives you more questions you gotta get answered. I have to do something with Jesus. So here's the simple question for this morning. What are you doing with Jesus? Are you following him? As the great light of the world, is he the one leading you through the wilderness, lighting the path for your feet? And not in a heavy-handed preacher, guilty kind of manipulative kind of way. I don't think I have to do that. I think the word of God does it itself. I, like Jesus, say, I'm not your accuser. I'm not. I think the word of God does this for us all. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It cuts right to the very core of who we are, exposing our motives. And for all of us in this room today, I think we must, in humility, consider, are we following Jesus Christ? If not, who do you pattern your life after? What in your life is acting like the great light of the world? And how do you need to repent of that? Repentance, by the way, we use these words in, in church, and it's perfectly fine, and we should. Confession and repentance. Confession is where you really just admit you've done something wrong, which can be hard enough, right? Repentance is when you do something differently. And the Bible makes it plain that you are to repent, and repentance is a practice of the righteous, not just the pagan. It's not like you repented from your sins one time and got saved. No, you were constantly bringing your pattern of life in step with the gospel. And so this morning, I think just we all need to let the word of God just shine that light as we ask ourselves, am I following Jesus or what am I pattering my life after? And then I'll ask you this question as well. So what's stopping you from following Jesus? As you hear and are presented from God's word, who is Jesus? And if this is your first time in church in a long time, you got such a small portion of it, right? But what's stopping you from following Jesus? Are you already in that super hardened camp? And you've just outright rejected. If so, are you a good judge? Have you made a good judgment? 
Or have you just hardened your heart? And even though you could have found out Jesus was from Bethlehem, you decided to say, no, he's from Galilee. We know that Christ can't come from Galilee. Let's, let's go kill him. And let's not act as if we don't act like that today, right? You've been there yourself at some point, so let's not just point the finger at somebody else. At some time in your life, you know you've been wrong, but you did not care. You were so protective of what you wanted to be true, you willfully closed your eyes to the truth and the evidence. So let's, let's just not easily go to political opponents or things like that and go, yeah, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> it could, it's likely been you at one point. If so, just be honest with yourself. Are you a good judge? Have you been a good judge? Have you really opened yourself up to the truth? And then maybe you're more in the middle there where you're like, no, I, I, I don't know, but I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of doubt. That's okay. Those of you that have any familiarity with the story of Jesus, you at least know one of his disciples, Thomas, struggled with what? Doubt, or at least he had a moment of doubt, whether or not his whole life was filled with doubt. Who knows, right? That one moment defined him for so many of us, right? Which is stupid, but. <laughs> How did Jesus treat Thomas? Kindly. Thomas had a question. He doubted. Jesus gave him the kind of evidence he needed for his doubts to go away. Again, if you read the Gospels, you will see Jesus doing that all the time. Jesus does not just make a claim and then say, believe it or else. He gives reasons to believe that claim. He did it in this very passage, the whole idea of witnesses. I get it. Listen, my, witness, my testimony is true. I'm not lying to you. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. I only say what the Father tells me to say. My testimony is true by myself, but I get it. Here are my witnesses. And any honest person at the time who knew, especially the religious, the, the, the Jews at the time, they would have known the works by themselves. They're in evidence. You also remember the story of the paralytic man? The, he had his four friends that opened up the roof of someone's house, which is such a crazy story, and they lower him down, and Jesus ends up healing this man. But do you remember the whole, the, the, the back and the, the, the exchange here? Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, and he perceived that in the heart's the Pharisees, they were really questioning that. Like, and Jesus knew that. And he knew why they would have a problem with that, right? Who alone but God can say, I forgive you of your sins. So Jesus asked him a question. Do you remember this question he asked him? He asked the crowd, what is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or pick up your mat and go home? And this interactive, so no one makes the mistake Ryan made earlier here. <laughs> Thanks, bro. I'll, I'll buy you lunch or something for this. I'll give you one of my books. Uh, <laughs> I'll stop with the jokes. Literally, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to a paralytic man, get up and walk. What's easier to say? Sins are forgiven. Now, some of you might be going, well, I don't know, making the claim 
then I can forgive you your sins will get you killed because it's making a claim to divinity. So I get that. But literally, yeah, what, because how are you ever going to prove that? You say get up and walk. If the guy doesn't get up and walk, it's lit, so it's literally harder to say that. But here's the key thing. Jesus said, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, pick up your mat and walk. And the man picked up his mat and walked and gave people a reason to believe that Jesus was not lying to them when he said, I forgive you of your sins. This is why I (laughs) feel silly saying love Christianity. I should just say love God, right? In his love, he meets us where we are and gives us reasons to believe what he says is true. So for those of you that are struggling right now, that you're like, I'll admit, I'm not following Jesus. I'm not. You may call yourself a Christian. You may not. I don't know. But you're not. For what, what you have in common is I'm not following Jesus right now. Identify your doubt. Is it intellectual doubt? Do you just have a question you don't have an answer to? Like, literally, is Jesus from Galilee or Bethlehem? That's a factual kind of thing. And some of you have doubts that are in that category. You just don't know something, and you need to know it. And once you know it, boom, it's like it's unlocked to you. Some of you might be struggling with what is called emotional doubt. That's kind of like the what if yeah, but what if? Yeah, but what if? It's really a feeling. What if God really isn't good? What if God has forsaken me? What, what if? And maybe you're looking at the pain in your life, the hardship that you're going through, And that's causing you to doubt. Some of you could be dealing with volitional doubt. It's just, I don't want to. I do not believe my life will be better by following Jesus. Now, we could spend all day on these three different kinds of doubt, but my time is already up. I just wanted to give you some categories to think in for those of you that are honestly questioning things right now. Naming the source of your doubt is a very helpful thing in having that doubt erased. I think Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he made that evident. Why are we not all following him? as fully and completely as we can, the great light of the world that will save us from our sins. Let us all this day remember why we call ourselves Christians and let us spur one another on in good works and obedience. And may we help each other to repent to be bold in speaking truth, but to be compassionate and merciful just as God was. And may you all here 
be a light to this world as you follow the light of the world. Amen? Amen. Thank you.